and I cow called. And as soon as I cow called, I heard a stick just crack. And so I immediately moved, changed locations, moved up farther down, kind of posted up in front of a like small sapling at my back, knocked an arrow and was like ready to draw. And the next thing I hear, I just hear this like, like coming down the trail. It was so loud. I could have sworn it was just this monster bull, like flying around the corner. I see this flash of tan. I draw my bow. And then the next thing I realized there's like this white face with like black stripes looking at me. And it was so close. I just put my top pin right in the center of its chest and just pulled through my shot. And then it, uh, it ran three steps towards me, rolled, popped up and did like drunk walk. I mean, it just looked really, really hurt and like went over the top of this little knob and, uh, it took a long recovery, but we, we eventually found it. It was, it was totally crazy though. I mean, I shot it at nine yards frontal as it was basically coming at me. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Finn, what's going on in Boise? Not a whole lot. Been uh, been going to school, taking a heavy course load, and then uh, going through pledging right now. But I've been getting out in the woods as much as I can. Been doing a little bit of mule deer shed hunting and going fishing on the river when I can. You catching anything? Not really. Honestly, it's been pretty tough. <laughs> oh, it'll get better when it warms up. Are you taking any uh, any interesting classes? Anything got you excited? Um, I've been doing psych 101 and then human anthropology, which so both have been super interesting. It's like human evolution and development. So that's all been super interesting. And then a bunch of math classes and other boring stuff. Gotcha. I was doing some, some research on, uh, on cutting tools the other day. And I learned, um, that the oldest example we have of humans cutting on an animal to eat it was from 2.6 million years ago and it was on a zebra and you know that's interesting enough and of course that's a that's not homo sapiens as we know them that's like an early hominid but with that you have to take into account that we don't think that we started cooking until like 1.5 million years ago so we were cutting up meat to eat for over a million years before somebody was like, Hey, let's throw this thing on a fire and see if that makes it a little better. Pretty uh, concept. It is. So 
you know, what we're going to talk about today is, is how to learn to hunt in modern times, which is what you've done. And you've done a remarkable job of it. And I think that you're a great leader and a great example for other people who are trying to do this. And a lot of folks fall into the trap of trying to figure out what to learn, right? Instead of how to learn. And you definitely need to learn the right things. But if you're not capable of learning at all, then it doesn't matter what material gets in front of you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank so, you. Yeah. Um, so I met Finn uh, a couple years ago, I guess. And you'd only been shooting a bow for a fairly short amount of time at that point. I think a couple years, right? Yeah. I started, I started bow hunting when I was 16. So like 2017. Okay. Right. Um, so I, I knew that and, you know, I figured, okay, this kid's been shooting a bow for a couple of years. Um, you know, maybe we can work on some stuff and you came down to my archery range and your form was immaculate. Like I could not come up with a single thing to criticize you on. I was like, how did you learn how to do this? And I assumed that you'd gone out and found some, some coaches and, and, and taking a bunch of sort of conventional training in, in different ways. Um, maybe gone to some seminars. I had no idea, but I needed to know. And your answer was that you'd learned by watching YouTube videos. And that is amazing to me because I think this is the first time ever that somebody could do that. So we go back to 2.6 million years. Somebody has to teach somebody else how to clack two rocks together to make one of them sharp so that we can cut on a zebra. All right. 1.5 million years ago, we start to learn how to cook. You know, these, these hunting skills are very old and it took us forever to learn them. But as a society, it took us a relatively short amount of time to forget them completely. So we have a huge portion of our society that has no idea how to hunt now. And then we have this small minority that still does it and an even smaller minority that explains how to do it on the internet. And then you took that information and put it to work. So I want to hear the origin story. Like, does your family hunt? Where did you grow up? Like, how, how, did so, the, how did this all start? Yeah, so I grew up in Seattle, Washington. I guess just outside of Seattle, a smaller town called Kirkland. Um, not at all in the woods. Um, closest, like, public land, I think, was about 25 miles. And uh, I just... Uh, I kind of grew up fishing. I spent a lot of time outside, had a deep passion for just being outside any way I could be. Um, I think when I was seven, I started making bows with like shoelaces and sticks that I would find from cedar trees. I was just obsessed from a super young age. And it kind of started with uh, my grandpa used to hunt and he'd like tell me some stories and he got me into fishing. And then gradually that kind of just progressed into a couple stories that i completely fell in love with the idea of going out and getting my own food from the mountains and uh, eventually just picked up a bow from Cabela's. I think it was like their bear apprentice three. It was like some little kid bow, 28 inches axle to axle, just this little thing. And I started shooting all the time. Eventually I decided to go deer hunting and I've just been obsessed since then pretty much, but I'd, I started that journey through, uh, learning from YouTube. Like I remember I had one hunting mentor that was my dad's really good friend who was kind of somebody that I could call and lean on. 
but I had to learn basically on my own. And I just remember going into like the YouTube search bar and looking up how to hunt blacktail deer. And I would just like start watching every single video that I could trying to gain more knowledge. And eventually, um, and class about two years ago, I started getting into podcasts and that's been like game changing. What are some podcasts that you like? Uh, I mean, I listen to yours a lot. I also listen to elk shape. I think that that's one of the premier elk hunting podcasts. And then the rich outdoors with Cody rich has also been really influential on me. Nice. And what about, you know, YouTube channels, are there channels that had a bigger impact on you than others? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I learned to shoot a bow from watching John Dudley's school of knock. That was kind of how my, my journey started. I had no idea where to start and I was like, I don't even know what to do with this. And so I started watching um, school of knock from Dudley and basically just went through every single episode, the way he puts it together, like a class and would film myself actually shooting in my yard. Like I'd set my phone up on my truck tailgate and film myself shooting just to like critique my form and then compare to like what I was seeing in videos. And gradually I, I started to shoot better and better groups until I was shooting pretty consistently and I could pick a point and pretty much hit it. So I think you're hitting on a couple, a couple key points here. So the, one of the first steps is to just become curious and want the information, right? And whatever lights that fire for you is going to be different for every person. And then after that, you have to start gaining knowledge and exposing yourself to resources. So how old are you? I'm 19 now. 19. So, you know, as a, as, as a teenager, YouTube is going to be a go-to resource for all kinds of things for you. Like you've grown up with YouTube. Like I remember when YouTube started, that's weird to me. I, you know, it was, it was the, the early days of YouTube were so terrible. I thought this is going to go nowhere. And my friend Corey Otten showed me a YouTube video of another friend of ours that was like so incredibly grainy because digital cameras were, you know, completely garbage at that point. And it was just of a dude that we knew like skateboarding in a hallway. And it was the dumbest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I thought this is like kind of interesting. Okay. Somebody can put something on the internet, but like, this is definitely going nowhere. And obviously I could not have been more wrong. So you grew up with YouTube as a resource. You went and you found that. And then you started putting it to practice and you started critiquing yourself. And that is a really, really important skill is to be able to look at what you're doing. And again, you're, you, you're utilizing modern technology of like a video camera and your cell phone to be able to see exactly what you're doing and make those critiques. That takes a lot of humility as well. So how do you sort of fight wanting to be good at something, um, trying to develop a sense of confidence and also really picking yourself apart and looking for ways to improve? I think that was one of the things that I struggled with most. I know, um, when I first started archery, I felt like I was a much better shooter than I was. I think that's pretty common with a lot of people. And then gradually, I kind of, I think it was about a year into my journey, I realized I was like, I'm really not that good of a shooter. I can, I can pick a spot within 35 yards and hit it. And after that, it's kind of airballing. And so I, I really had to like, kind of humble myself and force myself to like, slow down and really go through the steps and relearn the whole process, which was 
really hard and it actually really messed with my confidence. And I struggled with target panic a lot after that. And I went through a year where that was actually the one year since I started hunting that I haven't filled a tag. And, uh, it was because I just like, I could not pull myself together to execute shots. Cause I just completely lost all my confidence in myself, whether it was false confidence or actual confidence. And I had to go through a pretty tough journey, like just shooting every single day and practicing relentlessly and, um, overcoming that. And then watching a lot of videos. I mean, Dudley has a lot of good videos on target panic, listening to podcasts, just trying to figure out how to work through that, break through that barrier and then get control over my shot process and ultimately kind of figure it out. So how do you take the skill of limiting target panic and then take that to the field and keep that from turning into bull fever, buck fever, or mountain lion fever. Like how, how do you harness that, that confidence and that calm when you're in a field condition and really, really matters? Is it the same thing or is it different? I think for me, I is back and forth. The, the first elk I ever shot, I shoulder bladed. It was a really hard experience to go through, but I absolutely lost my mind. I mean, the elk came in, do his, I'd hunted like six days, had not seen an elk. And then all of a sudden it was first light and I'd called a pretty good bull into 15 yards. And as he came around the side of the tree, he like started kind of cow. It's not like cow calls. I'm not sure what the technical term is, but uh, he kind of came around this tree and he was 15 yards. And I was like, Oh my God. And I was at full draw. And then he started like walking away and then he stopped and I pulled through my shot and he stepped back right as I shot. And, I just like completely lost my cool. I didn't cow call to stop him or anything. And I had just no control over what was going on. Um, and since then I've just really focused, like every time I pull my bow back, I kind of think about that. And I just force myself to like go through a checklist of just like stay calm, pick a spot. Like I try and just focus on like knowing that I got to pick a hair and I don't, I try not to get excited because it's just like the time to get excited is after you shoot. And once you get excited, it's over for me at least. <laughs> That's a really good point. Easier said than done for sure. Uh, I still get super excited every time I get an opportunity for actual trigger time. Um, I was deer hunting in Nebraska this fall with Jordan Bud, and we were watching these deer out messing around and, um, and kind of got to pick out which buck we wanted to, to go after. So they're in this big uh, cut cornfield a full rut, you know, bucks are chasing does. It's awesome. And they, as soon as they jumped out of this cornfield, they had to cross kind of this big like plains area and then drop down into river bottom where they're bedding for the day. So you'd find the buck that you were interested in and find the doe that he was interested in and then try and figure out where she was going to jump out of the field to head to the river. And he was definitely going to follow her. And you know, our hunt didn't last very long. We're a couple hours into it. And, uh, before I, before I got this deer, but when I was getting ready to shoot and I was breathing hard, I was excited. I was, I was nervous. It was everything, you know, it's, it's all the same feelings from like the very first time that I got to hunt anything. And Jordan was kind of chuckling and, and teasing me. She's like, it seems like you were really excited. Like I am, man. I love it. I can't get enough of it. But, uh, that excitement is an interesting thing because it can cause all types of physical and psychological reactions that aren't necessarily positive. 
So for some people, it can really sharpen you. For other people, it can make you do dumb stuff and panic and shoot a bull in the shoulder blades. So is it all archery for you or were you ever introduced to guns? So I started, I mean, first time I ever got any real coaching on shooting was when I came out and shot with you at your place. But um, I've shot a handful of coyotes with a rifle. Uh, and then I took this August after, uh, after you and I went shooting, I took my, one of my best friends from home, who's a PRS shooter. And he and I went out to uh, Hell's Canyon area and we shot a black bear, which was super cool. But that's pretty much the extent of my rifle hunting. It's tell, been, me, tell me about that bear hunt. Tree. The bear hunt was awesome. So we, we started out, um, there's a wilderness area up, uh, up in the high Alpine that I was thinking would be a pretty cool area to start just cause there's some high lakes and just beautiful Alpine country that I really wanted to hunt in. And so we backpacked up into the end of there for three or four days. And the amount of people this year in the back country was unbelievable. We couldn't get away from people. We couldn't find a spot where there was kind of untouched big open meadows and slides that we could kind of glass and figure out where critters were moving around. And after I think it was day three or four of not, I think it was day four and we hadn't seen a bear yet. And I, I just made the executive decision. I was like, all right, we're going to, we're going to pull out. We're going to go hit some different country and try and relocate. So we, we picked up, hiked out six miles in the dark, got back to the trucks and drove out towards Hell's Canyon on the Snake River breaks and um, basically hiked out a ridge the next evening. I set up a predator call because I was just thinking maybe if a coyote comes in, just keep my buddy interested. He hasn't done a lot of hunting. So I was like, anything that happens is awesome. We set up a predator call and I fell asleep. <laughs> I was so tired. I was laying <laughs> on the side of the hill. I passed out. And the next thing I see is my buddy. He's like popping his head up over the rocks. Cause we set up about 50 yards apart. And he's popping his head up over the rocks. He's like doing this like crawling motion with his hands and like pointing down the canyon. And I was like, what the heck are you talking about? And I looked down there and all of a sudden I just see this big black dot all the way down to the bottom. And I was thinking, no way. So I broke out my rangefinder. The bear was at 600. We waited. He came into 500. And for my buddy, that's a pretty smoke show shot. He's a very good shooter. And he basically lined up on a tripod actually and shot this bear sitting on his butt off a tripod shooting straight down a canyon and absolutely smoked it and it dumped immediately nice then then how'd it go you know that's uh that's just the beginning of the story so everything up until that point that i'd shot i'd shot with a bow so i'm starting a blood trail 50 yards from where i'm standing at the farthest point um, this was different. I mean, this animal was 500 yards away and we had to figure out how to find it and all the, I mean, you know how that country is, there's big, tall bushes and shrubs and stuff, and it looks really open. And then you get there and you have stuff that's coming up over the top of your head. And so we started to hike down the ridge that night and we got into where I thought the bear was. And we started kind of looking around, trying to figure out which one of those little open patches the bear had been in. And I was light was fading really fast. And I realized I was like, we're not going to find this thing right now. And, uh, it was super tough, but we had to kind of make an executive decision to, to pull out and climb out. And my buddy lost his headlamp in that super tall buck brush that's out there. Yep. And so his headlamp got pulled off his head. I was the only one with a light and we had to just, we had to pull out, come back the next morning. So we got up, 
next morning about 3.30, this time with a smarter approach. Um, he stayed back up on the hill, and I walked down the opposite ridge where the bear was on. And he basically guided me into it, and we figured that out because of uh, – I can't remember the video, but I, I watched a video where they were having trouble finding an animal, and that was basically what they did. And I was like, all right, that's what we're going to that's what we're gonna have to do because I didn't really have anybody to teach me that yet. So that was, that was cool, but it was a, it was a hard-earned lesson. What do you think the relationship is like between learning and then taking the things that you've learned and teaching them to somebody else? That's interesting. So – I think it's, it's hard because as I'm, as much as I'm still kind of like going through my journey and teaching myself going and teaching somebody else is much, much more difficult than just like kind of ingesting information. Cause I know everything going on in my head. And then when I'm trying to like teach somebody, especially in like a pressured scenario like that, I think it can be, it can be pretty stressful, but then it's also a super fun opportunity. It's like, I think hunting's traditionally been passed down from father to son. And that's something that I didn't really have. But what I've done is I've basically built a group of friends that were all non-hunters from my high school. And now we all hunt together and we're a super close-knit group. And I basically took each one of them and started taking them out coyote hunting because I feel like that's a really easy area to start learning how to walk through the woods quietly. And there's it's not super high stakes. It's not like you're on an elk hunt in the mountains um still really challenging absolutely yeah i mean it's it's never easy coyote hunting has humbled me more times than i'd like to admit yeah but uh i kind of just started out going through that and then just taking them out in the woods and getting them out there and then kind of showing them basically just like what i've learned through doing it and just being just taking them with me do you feel like teaching helps you learn oh yeah I, I recognize my own mistakes 10 times more when I'm trying to teach somebody. Every time I, I take uh, some of my younger friends out and I'm out like showing them how to walk through the woods and then I step on a branch. It's like, dude, I look at myself and like, I, I'm way more critical of myself when I'm out there. And so it really helps me to like pay more attention. I know I'm much more calculated and I think a lot more about things like the wind and just I pay more attention to what's going on when I'm trying to teach somebody. So it's a better opportunity for me to kind of like slow down. Nice. I think that there's sort of a misconception that people don't have any business teaching unless they are themselves a master of the subject. And there's definitely people who don't know enough about it to be teaching, but there's also this big middle ground where it's part of the learning process. So if you are teaching something to somebody else that you don't feel like you've mastered yourself, it gives you a way to look back at, at all of the ways that you've been learning and then really, really dissect every aspect of this. Um, and it helps you get better at teaching the next time and then helps you get better at learning the next thing as well. So practice is huge. Um, exposure to knowledge is huge, but then as we get into this next level, we're starting to teach other people. And that just is a huge catalyst for that, that higher level of understanding. And I think it's important that you're taking that step um, as you're moving forward. And you are an important person for, for hunters everywhere, Finn, because you're the one who's taking people your age and exposing them to hunting and bringing them into this sport. 
And we've got to have that. We've got to have you. And that's part of why I think it's so interesting that you've been able to, to do what you've done because we need more people like you. So I, I think you're like this, this thing that we have to capture and study so that we can try and, you know, get more people like you out there because you're doing a lot of good for, uh, for your friends, for your community, for, for other hunters. Um, I think it's, it's super cool. Thank so, you. So I know one of, uh, one of your mentors that, that helped you with hunting a lot is, is Lem McBurney, um, who's a mutual friend of both of ours. And in talking with Lem, he had an interesting point about this as well with sort of that, that student teacher relationship, because he feels like you have given him so much energy to get back into the woods and continue hunting. So there's been a very mutually beneficial relationship between the two of you there. Do you feel like you're starting to experience that with other people that you're taking hunting now? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like I know, I know I'm at school now, so I've, I've met a lot of kids. I don't know if you're familiar with Boise state, but, uh, a lot of people call it Cal state Boise because of the number of California kids that have come up here. And it's super interesting because I have a lot of friends that I've grown close with that didn't really get a lot of exposure to the mountains or going outside. And as much as I like get super stuck on studies or like being really focused on school and stuff that's going on, I've got all these buddies that are hitting me up on the side, like, dude, you got to take me out. Like, let's, let's go hunting. You got to show me what it's about. And so it's, it gets me more fired up to like get out and go just get outside more often. So I've spent way more time, I think, going outside and taking new hunters out this year than I have in the past, just because I've got so many friends that just didn't get to do it growing up. And that's been an unbelievable experience for me. And it's just, it's so much more fun and it gets me so much more excited to be outside, just getting to take somebody who's never done it and kind of like vicariously live through them and like remember what it was like to go through every single like tribulation and trial like figuring it all out i think some of the the funnest hunting that i ever experienced was while i was in college and you know didn't know what i was doing i was broke as a joke you know i'd like scrap money together for weeks to be able to buy you know the cheapest duck decoys that have ever come out of india and, uh, you know, they looked more like carp than ducks and just doing the most bogus, stupid things possible. But it was also so much fun. Like we had an absolute blast hunting in college with really limited resources, not knowing the area. It was awesome. And that is something that you're having to learn now is like, how do you move into a new area and then learn how to recreate in that place? How do you learn how to fish and hunt? once you've moved to a new state? That's been hard. Um, Idaho is, I would say Washington does a really good job of organizing their regulations and uh, putting together their pamphlets. Idaho is very confusing for me because I'm trying to completely reteach myself how to understand their book. And so just like I've been trying to figure out lately uh, draw odds and trying to figure out what unit I want to put in for for elk next year because I missed the over-the-counter dates sadly, because of the reduced tag numbers, which is a bummer, but I've been trying to figure that out. And then also just trying to figure out like duck hunting has been super fun. It's easy to do on the weekends. And um, while I'm at school, it's been super fun. And that was super hard to figure out. Luckily, I met a local kid who is an absolute slayer. 
And so he basically showed me this lake that we hunt now and it's on fire all the time. Nice. That's a, that's pretty critical, right? Is trying to find that, that new mentor that can, they can show you the ropes. How do you be respectful with that? Because that information is so incredibly valuable. Like how, in what ways do you try to show him respect and show respect to that place that he's taken you? So, I mean, my, my general rule of thumb is if somebody takes me somewhere to hunt, I'm not going back there without that person. That's just my own personal code of ethics. I, I kind of expect the same from my friends. I've got a couple of really, really good deer spots where I grew up really close to home and they all know, like if I'm hunting with Finn, we can go there, but if they're not with me, then it's kind of not cool. And so it's, uh, I kind of try and respect that same boundary. And if I'm, if they invite me out or if they want to go, or if I really want to go, I'll, I'll reach out to them and be like, Hey dude, let's, let's go duck hunting tomorrow and we'll go. But, but, um, I try not to go in there without them just cause I feel like that's kind of overstepping my boundaries. What I have done though, is I've found areas close to that, um, which I think kind of it's borderline like poaching on a spot, but I'll, I'll like pick up the areas like if he's got this lake that's right here and there's a river that's flown out the bottom of the lake and i know the flyways i'll go hunt the river when i'm not with him because i know that there's still going to be ducks moving up and down and so i kind of figured out like i can hunt the areas that are close by and still like not necessarily encroach on his spot i think that's really important and i i fully agree with you and there's there's people that don't understand that and then there's the even worse people that understand it but do it anyways um and you can only burn me once. Like if I come back to a spot that I've shown somebody and I find them in it and they brought six of their buddies with them, it's like, I'm never going to help that person again. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. Wasn't a shotgun one of your uh, first guns? Yeah. So my granddad, um, he bought me my first shotgun when I was 13. So when I was my hunting story really started when I was 11. I, without my parents knowing, neither of them are hunters. Now, uh, my dad fishes. My mom is borderline against hunting almost. <laughs> so uh, without either of them knowing, I was 11 and I signed up for the Washington Hunter Safety Course and took it in two days without telling them and then signed up for a field course a month later. And I told my dad three days before the field course that, hey, I need you to drop me off here at 11 years old. And so he was like, all right. And I was like, you cannot tell my mom. <laughs> and he was like, all right. And so we went and uh, I finished that. And my granddad thought it was really cool when he wanted to be able to introduce me to hunting, but he hadn't had a lot of hunting experience himself. And so he bought me a shotgun and started uh, taking me skeet shooting and pheasant hunting because he was military. So he'd grown up around guns. And that was kind of like my introduction to the, like, the greater outdoor world. So how does mom feel <laughs> You know, when she doesn't really like hunting and then uh, granddad gives gives you a shotgun at 13, was was your mom like, OK, it's cool? Or was she not very cool with that? Um, I honestly I'm not entirely sure. I haven't I haven't had the conversation just because I've been <laughs> I've been uh, very appreciative. <laughs> I've been very appreciative of the opportunities that I've been blessed with and um I try not to push the boundaries in, uh, in that direction. I just don't ask questions and just take things for, for what they are as much as I can. Um, I know that uh, she definitely did not want that gun in our house for a long time. So that gun lived with my granddad for until I think I was 17. 
probably. And then, then I had uh, that shotgun allowed in my house, which was pretty sweet. That's so funny. It's, it's, it's mind blowing to me. It's really impressive that as an 11 year old, you, you found this fire to go and do it. Like, where did that come from? I, I have no idea. I mean, I know from, from the youngest age, I was incredibly passionate about fishing. Like I would wake up at five in the morning and I would wake my dad up out of bed and get him to take me out to the river and we'd go fly fish at like five or six years old. I'd be like waking him up to get me to get him to take me out. And um, I've kind of been like that with whatever it is in the outdoors that I've been invested in since that point in my life. Like I just, I've got something in me that just yearns for being up in the mountains. And uh, I think that like that love to fish and seeing fish turn into food. Cause we grew up salmon fishing a lot out on uh, Puget sound. So turning fish that we caught into food and then cooking it, that like idea in my head, transitioned into okay well then that rabbit's food that deer that i see there is food and then i had this desire to make those things also be food so uh i just kind of like i don't know exactly where it came from but somewhere around there i just got the desire to go out and start shooting things how's the transition been between eating a, a diet of wild game that you're getting yourself to eating cafeteria food in a dorm I, uh, I miss it a lot. I actually have, uh, in my, in my freezer right here, I've got, I think six ducks left and a couple pieces of deer backstrap for my blacktail that I shot this year. But, uh, we have a little kitchen. So I try and I try and go cook at least once a week and reminisce and enjoy food. Cause the dorm food is definitely not, uh, there's nothing that compares. Yeah. Tell me about your blacktail. So my blacktail this year was super fun. I, uh, I know I talked to you earlier this year. I was, I really wanted to do the late season archery mule deer hunt that Washington has. And I did it. It was awesome. I should have shot a giant mule deer. I mean, giant for, for my standards, it was probably around 165, 170. It's a big buck. But, uh, yeah, it was a great, it was a great deer. And, um, I chased him around for four days it was super fun. Um, he was just, he had does all over him and it was super, super crunchy snow. Um, I was hunting up in North central Washington. So it was just after a snow, like a week after. So everything was super crunchy on the ground. I'd work my tail off trying to get in close enough. And I was, I'd like every time I'd get into like, I feel like it was 85 yards. It was like the magic number, like 85 to 80 yards. And I'd get there and I'd take like one more step. And then every single deer in that herd would just like pop their head up and start looking at me. I was like, shoot. And I just hope I'd get, in, <laughs> I'd get into that range. And I'd just like hope that he'd slip up and come 20 yards closer to me. And I was, I was pretty much ready. I mean, I wanted him inside 50 yards was kind of what I went into the, the hunt with that mindset. Um, and so I just like, I just couldn't make it happen. I got so close so many times, but um it was fun. I had a blast doing that. And then that hunt ends, that hunt's only 10 days long. So that ended shortly after Thanksgiving. So I went home and started blacktail hunting like a madman. It was mostly like I'd get up in the morning, go hunt for two hours before class because we were doing online school. So I'd get up in the morning, go hunt two hours before class and then finish up my morning hunt. 
drive home, go to class for a couple hours and then get back in my car and drive back out to my spot and just get back after it. Um, it was spot in stock. I know a lot of guys do tree stand. I just picked up one. So I kind of want to try that next year, but I just love being on the ground. And so that took a while. Eventually I ended up going up to the islands. It was the last week or so of season. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the San Juans. I know where it is. Okay. So the, the islands up there are massively overpopulated with, uh, with deer. There's an overabundance. So it's, it's pretty fun hunting. So I was still hunting like big old growth timber up on Blakely Island. I had an invitation to come out there, which was super cool. Um, it takes an invitation because the whole island is privately owned mm. by a timber company. Okay. So it was, it was super awesome opportunity to have. And that was through Lem's greater community of um, resources. Nice. And I got to go out there. I hunted for three days. I had two pretty good blacktail bucks that I just couldn't get a shot off because it's so thick. And then it was my last day of my hunt and I was hiking through and I just saw this doe at 20 yards and she just stood up and I was like, that thing's done. <laughs> it's any deer. And I was like, I'm, I'm so shooting that deer. And I just drew back and I absolutely smoked her. She ran like 30 yards and died. Awesome. What are you doing for an arrow and a broadhead? So I'm shooting a full metal jacket. Um, I think mine are 28 inches with a 50 grain insert. And then I'm running the 125 grain micro Hades for blade. Is that expandable? I don't know that broadhead. No, it's the, um, it's the broadhead that, uh, the dude from Alpine archery actually recommended it to me. Okay. Um, he was, uh, he said it's, it's a fixed blade. I don't like expandables. Um, I'm definitely part of the fixed blade crowd. I just, I've watched enough elk hunting videos and just, I'm an elk hunter in heart. So I want something that I can take everything with, but yeah, it, it worked awesome. I had huge blood trail blew through ribs on both sides and just absolutely crushed that deer. So it was, it was really awesome performance as far as that goes. I think my total arrow weights right about 525 grains, somewhere around there. And you're pulling 70 pounds. Uh, yeah, right about 72, I think. 72. What bow? I'm shooting a Hoyt RX-1 Ultra yeah. with the, the big bow. What do you like about it? Um, so I shot, uh, my first bow was like 28 inches axle to axle. And then my next bow is 30. So I really like the, the longer axles on the bow. I just feel like I get a much more forgiving shot and a much more stable platform shooting a long bow like that. I really like, it's just smooth. I mean, the whole bow with the way I've outfitted with stabilizers and um, everything, there's just, there's no vibration. The bow just points really well for me and just fits well in my hand. I like the grip. I like the way it feels and overall shootability for me was just every time I'd shot that bow before I purchased it, I was like, this is the bow I really want. And eventually I found one used that had like a hundred arrows through it. And some dude wanted to sell it for 800 bucks. I was like, all right, I'll take it. Nice. Yeah. That's a good, good way to save yourself a lot of money is to find a lightly used bow. Even a bow that's been shot a lot still has a lot of life left in it. I think I've only ever like truly worn out one bow and it was a Martin and I'd put about 17,000 shots through it and it actually died at a really inconvenient time. Um, So I started archery season with it. This is I don't know, several years ago, a long time ago. 
Um, but I started archery season with it. I shot a buck on opening day. And then I had like 10 days before I was heading to Montana for our uh, elk hunt. And so I was continuing to practice each day, but the bow was getting weaker by the day. So every day I had to spread my pins out, all my pins a little bit more because the limbs were like dying on me. They just had enough. <laughs> and I was like, I can't do this. You know, I'm going to run out of room. I'm going to be out there with like a 20 and a 30 pin. If I keep going like this, you know, the bow is just dying. It had had enough. So I did something, you know, unfortunate, but I stopped in Boise and picked up a bow on my way to Montana. And then when I got to camp, I sighted it in and, you know, just shot, I was shooting at headlights, you know, I was shooting until my arm was ready to fall off because there was a brand new bow to me. It takes a long time to like get used to a new bow and, you know, ended up hiking up the mountain. And I think day three or four, four or five, four or five of that hunt. Um, I ended up shooting a bull with it. And that's totally something that I feel hypocritical about because I would never recommend that somebody pick up a bow on their way to elk camp to, you know, go hunting with like, that's crazy sauce, but it's also my only option because my other bow unexpectedly like gave it up. So it was a, it was a big challenge, but that was a Hoyt too, actually. Um, and I only shot it for that season and then I, I got rid of it cause it just didn't, didn't suit me that well, but no, it's, it's fun figuring all this stuff out. Isn't it, man? Yeah. Oh my gosh. The whole, the whole journey is fun. You're shooting prime now, right? Yep. Yep. So I've got a couple, couple primes that I'm shooting. They're, they're all 80 pound limb bows and you know, they, they just fit me really well. And you know, I use uh, Alpine Archery and Legrand, tremendous shop, and they're really, really good at tuning primes. So I think that that's an important factor. Like finding a bow that fits you is one thing, but finding a bow that your pro shop is good at working on is equally important, right? Like if I drove a, a Ferrari here in Wallowa County, it would do me no good because nobody knows how to work on the thing. I drive a Ford because the mechanics here are really good at you know, working on Fords, I'm not going to get in like the Ford Chevy Dodge debate. They'll all work, but I need somebody that can work on this thing because I can't do it myself. And there's very few guys that can actually work on a bow at the level that a good pro shop can work on a bow. So that's, that's why I'm shooting the bows that I shoot and uh, they work for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Bows are so personal. I think a lot of guys are always like, I have friends that shoot Matthews. Uh, my best friend actually just switched over to prime. He loves his black. It's been super good to him. And then um, I'm, I'm a Hoyt guy. I mean, I, I just love my Hoyt, but I think it's like, it's interesting because it's such a personal experience. And that was something that was kind of hard to figure out. Cause like, there's so much advertisements, especially for a young guy, like for me looking at everything that was kind of like coming at me and all these like different companies, like throwing stuff in my face like oh you need this and you need this and like all these different pros on on youtube and google or whatever saying oh this is what you need and it's super interesting because i i basically went into my pro shop at home which i'm not a huge fan of them but they do a good job of like kind of pointing you in the direction of what's going to work for you and that was super awesome for me is they were like well, why don't you shoot six bows and see what you like and i shot every bow in their shop and multiple times I went in there and shot everything until I was like, I know this is the bow that I want. I think that's the way to go about it. Um, and if, 
if you ever get a chance to go to like a trade show, especially um, ATA, the, the archery trade show, you get to shoot every bow out there for that year. You know, you can shoot a hundred bows over the course of three days and then be like, yeah, this is the bow for me for this year. Of course, a lot of people don't have that opportunity. So they have to rely on other people. I try to be really careful to not say you should shoot this or you should use this thing because this is what I use. Cause that's, that's crazy. Everybody's different, but you know, what I can do is say, Hey, this is how I use this. And it either worked for me or it didn't. And I think that's the, really the only honest way you can go about it. Otherwise you're just, you know, just a gun for hire. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's, that's something that's really important is kind of staying true. Um, Fidelity is important in the industry today. Yeah. Be honest, be true to yourself and, uh, and maybe don't listen to somebody that you think is, is not being completely honest. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Tell me about the mountain lion. Okay. So that story starts um, about a month before that happened. Um, it was August. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, and I was doing community college for the year. Um, it was right after I graduated high school, and I realized I didn't start school till September 23rd. And I'm sure your head's going exactly where mine's going, and I was like, I'm going to elk hunt this year if it kills me because I know I start school now in like August 25th. So I don't have that opportunity. And, um, I was not going to pass that up. So I went and I bought an out of state tag in Oregon, which was a lot of money, but, uh, well worth it. And I went and I was staying with Lem and I was hunting, hunted the first three days of the season and hadn't seen an elk yet. I was actually hunting up, uh, up on the ski hill, like right, right up around there. And, um, I was basically just cow calling through the heavy timber and reap rod. And all of a sudden I, I bumped something, but it, it sounded small. So I wasn't thinking elk. I was thinking more, I bumped a deer. Like I heard it kind of like scurry out from underneath all this like brush that I was really close to. And I was like, Oh, I must've just bumped a deer. And so I was kind of like walking through and I, I set up and I, I bugled and I actually got a bugle back. So I was, I kind of knew I was close to elk. So I set up, kind of sat down and, um, I was posted up on this tree and then I kept hearing like twigs popping and breaking around me, which I was thinking, okay, the elk is kind of like working in towards me in my head. I'm still thinking elk, elk, elk. And eventually all of a sudden I realized I was waiting for such a long time. It was like 1130 and I had to get to work. And so I started hiking out and I came into this really big open meadow. And as I got into that meadow, for whatever reason, I still had my diaphragm in and I was like, I'm going to cow call right now. And I cow called. And as soon as I cow called, I heard a stick just crack. And so I immediately moved, changed locations, moved up farther down, kind of posted up in front of a like small sapling at my back, knocked an arrow and was like ready to draw. And the next thing I hear, I just hear this like, like coming down the trail. It was so loud. I could have sworn it was just this monster bull, like flying around the corner. I see this flash of tan. I draw my bow. And then the next thing I realized there's like this white face with like black stripes looking at me. And it was so close. I just put my top pin right in the center of its chest and just pulled through my shot. And then it, uh, it ran three steps towards me, rolled, 
popped up and did like drunk walk i mean it just looked really really hurt and like went over the top of this little knob and uh it took a long recovery but we we eventually found it it was it was totally crazy though i mean it, i shot it at nine yards frontal as it was basically coming at me that's uh that's a pretty exciting scenario do you uh do you have any advice for people who are you know dealing with mountain lions now that carry you've a pistol carry a pistol <laughs> <laughs> Would that have done you any good though? I mean, you still had elk on the brain. I don't, honestly, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just, I mean, now every time I'm in the woods, I always just have that in the back of my head. But um, I do, uh, I do carry a big a K bar on my hip a lot mm-hmm. of times when I'm hiking, just because it's it's a good tool to have. Yep. Um, it used to be in my backpack, and now it's on my hip always. So that's uh, that's one thing because I kind of like I thought about in hindsight if. Uh, if I would have had to be on the ground with something like that, I'd want something really hard and pointy. So yep. that was, that was, uh, one of the newer things that I do now is I've, I've usually got that on my waist belt on my backpack, but, um, I think carrying a pistol is a, a big advantage, but in that situation, I think that's, that situation is kind of one in a million. I don't think that happens very often, but then I heard about a story like that. I know uh, earlier this year during elk season, I saw something like that on your Instagram story. Some uh, Somebody else kind of had a similar thing happen. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've actually heard that a very similar story from a lot of different people. Um, man, a lot of them have been lucky enough to get that shot off and uh, and get that frontal shot on a lion as it's coming in. But you've got to have your shot sequence like it has to be so dialed. You can't be in a place where you're thinking about it. You have to be able to shoot and not just shoot. Like you have to be able to shoot accurately under the most pressure that you can imagine because your life is on the line. Like you're about to get jacked up by a cat that's a hundred times stronger than you, you know? So yeah, yeah, I do all that practice. Like it can matter. It can matter a lot. I, I tend to think that people practice shooting too much. Um, and that they focus strictly on shooting. And part of it is because shooting is really fun. It's a fun thing to practice. Uh, I'd like to see people practice walking quietly a little bit more or practice trying to learn when the wind is going to switch or, you know, practice like just getting set up. Like how quickly can you go from walking to, you know, having your rifle up ready to fire or having, you know, an arrow knocked on the string and ready to draw, like those are really important skills that people should be practicing more of. But then we come into a situation like what you were dealing with. It's like, damn, man, like shooting has to be so ingrained in, into your body that it's all muscle memory and, and not necessarily instinct, but it's something that you can do without thinking and do quickly and do well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know for, for sure. Like that, that 10 yard under shot is pretty much for me. I don't even have to think cause I, I have a back alley at my, um, at my home in Seattle area where that's where I, that's where I shoot. Um, and so like the farthest I can shoot is 20 yards. And so I'm, I'm very practiced at just like rapid fire, just like slinging through arrows for an afternoon. And, um, that shot is like something, not necessarily that, but something I'd visualize a lot was like, quick opportunities especially going into that season because i knew i was spending a lot of money on an out-of-state elk tag and i wanted to kind of visualize like what i needed to be able to do to make sure that i if i got the one opportunity that i might get i was going to be clutch in that moment and so a lot of times when i was shooting i would um 
actually, I think I heard about that on a podcast, but it was talking about just like visualizing your shot opportunities every time you shoot your bow. So like rather than just drawing back and aiming at a black dot on a target and pulling through your shot and just making sure your execution is really good, I started to get really into shooting and visualizing like, okay, there's a tree right there. My target's right here. I'm watching this elk come. He's coming, he's coming. And now he's turning broadside. He's stopped and now I'm going to shoot. And I would kind of visualize that as I was shooting. And so I think kind of practicing those, those scenarios really helped me in, in that, in that situation. Well, as a guide, I've seen more close shots missed than long shots. And I, my, my feeling is that people tend to think that, okay, it doesn't matter at this point. Like I can just, I can just shoot and I don't care where, what weapon system it is. They don't show enough respect to the process for a close shot. So if you treat that process like religion, then you can still do it right. But if you're like, it's 10 yards away, all I have to do is pull back and let go. Like you're going to miss, like you're going to miss. So oh yeah, get, get religious about the process. Absolutely. Yeah. I learned that lesson the hard way. Um, this year, actually, I, uh, I missed, uh, so on that blacktail hunt, I missed, uh, deer cause I was the, the buck. So I basically came around, there were two fork horns and they were, it was really late in the season, which kind of shocked me. It was late December, but they were actually fighting each other and they were just sparring. Um, and I came around this little knob and I was, there was like a crook of a tree that I could slip an arrow through. And I got so excited. I already had an arrow knocked. I just drew back. I was like, this is point blank. And I just shot and stuck my arrow straight into the tree. And it was like, it was just, I wasn't humble enough. And I didn't take the time to like really focus and make sure like, okay, is this tree so close that my arrow is going to smack into this tree three feet from my bow. And like, I just didn't slow down. And like, that's a, that's a hard lesson to learn. But so let's say you're talking to, uh, you know, an 11 year old kid whose family doesn't hunt and they live in, in downtown someplace, or you're talking to, to anybody of any age that, that wants to learn how to hunt, but they don't have that mentorship. Um, they don't have the people around them to teach them. What advice do you have for those people to be able to get to where you are? I would say, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just be motivated to learn, like just take information from every source you possibly can. I know for me, like I was relentless. Like I would stay up till two in the morning, some nights watching YouTube videos, reading forums. Um, I know for me personally, like Washington has a, I don't know if you ever heard of like hunt Washington. There's a forum up there that we have and it's like statewide. And that forum did more for me personally in my learning how to actually hunt and where, what areas hold animals in Washington than I think any other possible resource that I've had access to. Um, so like getting into forums, cause people will give up stuff that you would be shocked. Like when you, when you go through those forums, like people will give you like basically GPS coordinates to their favorite elk spot on the West side and like just stuff like that. And it's just like shocking, but you just like, you'll find stuff like, Oh, I, I was up this trailhead and I'd, like some so-and-so happened while I was elk hunting and they're telling some story and they're not even thinking about the fact that they're just giving you their elk spot. Um, and so that was kind of how I, I figured out the, the blacktail grind in Washington, um, was basically just searching forums, but, um, YouTube as well. Like I just, 
be motivated to learn constantly. So like I, I still go through school of knock all the time when I'm shooting and I watch videos and I, I critique myself. I still video myself and um, still watch my form just cause I'm, I want to constantly improve. So I think like John Dudley is an incredible resource born and raised taught me how to elk hunt through observation. Um, like I watched, I watched their content pretty much nonstop. Like I've seen every one of their videos, except for I haven't had time to watch Land of the Free this year just because I've been so busy with school. But they they give so much information and they talk so much because they want to help people and they're just they're just really generous, good dudes. And they are, um, they are great guys. Like you know, I it, with within the within the hunting industry, there's a lot of people that act one way in front of a camera and then another way elsewhere. Those guys are the same all the time. They're just good dudes. Yeah. I remember you and I got to talk about that. Um, when we hung out, I just, from what I've seen from them, like everything on their Instagram, on their YouTube videos, like they just, they're the most, some of the most genuine guys that I've seen in the industry and they genuinely just want to help people. Like if you watch their content, they're constantly going through what they're doing to be successful. And it's not a super complicated system, but it works for them. And so like, that was something that I just really learned from and I'd watch and like, I've learned from their mistakes. I mean, I've seen the videos where somebody hits a branch and I've seen the videos where somebody shoots over the top of a bull because of bad range. And all of those little mistakes are things that being able to watch that in a video has saved me the hard learned lessons because I haven't had to like go through it myself. I can see their pain and like kind of visualize and like feel what it's like and realize like, okay, that's something that I need to like do this instead of that and learn from those lessons. And I mean, obviously, especially bow hunting is a like constant learning and constant mistakes, but, um, it's, it's helped me tremendously just like watching videos constantly and trying to pay attention to the mistakes that other people make so that I don't have to make them myself. That's awesome. Yeah. And you know, another aspect with the, with the born and raised dudes is uh, they're very, very humble and they're genuinely humble. It's not humble bragging. So next week they're going to come out here and take a rifle and pistol shooting course from me. Now I'm not a rifle and, and, and pistol expert by any means. There's a lot of people that are way better at instructing that stuff than I am. And, you know, there's, there's humility on my part there as well, because I'm going to be learning as I'm teaching them, they're going to be learning. I'm going to learn things from them. It's, it's us coming together to improve on aspects of what we're doing. And I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be awesome, but I encourage people, you know, to go off of what you're saying to, to keep that thirst and that motivation, but also keep that humility and never feel like, you're good enough. Like there's a lot of yeah. people, there's a lot of people out there. Like, I feel like that's the opposite of the mantra. Like everybody's saying, Hey, you're good enough as you are. Like, I'm here to tell you that you're not, I want you to keep getting better. And the only way to do that is to seek out people who are better than you surround yourself by experts if you can. And if you can't surround yourself by the experts on on whatever forum or, or, you know, YouTube channel or whatever you can, like the information is available now in ways that it's never been available before. So imagine, just imagine going back to 1.5 million years ago, where we're just first learning how to cook over a fire. Um, we've come a long ways, but it's taken such a long time to get to where we are. And we forgot, we forgot to how to hunt. 
and now we're learning again and we're teaching people again. What a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, today's, today's day and age is crazy. I mean, the opportunity that you can go out and literally like, I mean, I pretty much did. I mean, I definitely had some mentors along the way that were unbelievably kind and um, went out of their way to help me in my journey. But um, just like the opportunity that I had to literally go out and kind of learn how to do it from watching videos is, is something that anybody can do. And I'd, I'd really stress that like everybody can learn how to do this. Like you don't need somebody to hold your hand to do it. You can do it yourself. I assume that you would be willing to make yourself available to, to help other people with archery, with hunting, with whatever. So um, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, yeah. So I've got Instagram. My Instagram's Finn underscore both. But anybody that wants to get out and is in the Boise area or Washington, Seattle, or just wants to talk about hunting, um, feel free to reach out. Uh, I love helping other guys get out. I mean, that's one of my biggest passions now is taking guys out that haven't gotten to have the same experiences that I have and um, sharing it with them. Well, I really appreciate that. And folks, you can find uh, a link to Finn's Instagram down there in the show notes. And uh, the last thing I want to ask you, buddy, like what's the future hold for you? What, what's the, what's the future of hunting look like for Finn both? Uh, spring bear this, this spring for sure. I, uh, I've already bought my Idaho tag, so I'm pretty jazzed about that. Um, I'm going to be doing that with, uh, with a good buddy and then going forward, uh, hopefully elk in the fall, maybe sounds like it might be the last year of over the counter elk tags in Oregon potentially. So I'm going to be trying to get after that. Um, not sure. Definitely going to be, definitely going to be continuing to bow hunt. No doubt about that. And, uh, just, getting outside as much as I can. Well, I wish you all the luck in the world and I appreciate your time today. And again, I just want to reiterate that I'm, I'm really proud of everything that you've been able to accomplish. And I think you're setting a tremendous example for other people um, who are, who are trying to get into hunting and, and, you know, they don't have that close mentor. They don't have that, that father that can take them or that uncle or, or aunt or whatever, like, you, you really accomplished a lot. And I think that you're only just getting started. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me out, James. All right, brother. Take care. You too. This episode is brought to you by Stanley. It's that iconic hammer tone green thermos that women filled with soup while they were building B-17s. And men used to carry coffee when they flew those bombers into combat. It's that faded stainless steel bottle that's seen more trees felled and calves branded and barbed wire stretched than any living man. Six generations of Americans have been using Stanley to keep their coffee hot and their beer cold. They have a 100% leak-proof lifetime guarantee, and now it's not just the old green thermos. They have camp cookware, drinkware for that evening scotch, coolers, and some sweet titanium bottles that are light enough you'll throw one in your pack when you go hunting. I love a company that lasts by making gear that lasts. And if you are anything like me, you will also appreciate gear that's more likely to end up in your will than a landfill. I'm not offering a promo code where I get a kickback because that just isn't my style. But they do have a sale starting March 1st over at Stanley1913.com. Check it out. Thank you. 
thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.